So once they get to the next level, there's no difference. Um, meaning like pro level, uh, it's the only delineating factor is mental. Uh, they're all the same. They're all just as skilled. They're all they're all skilled from a throwing perspective, yeah. right? I, w- I would argue many of the college guys that we have in here, because you know we can have our MLB guys downstairs. Th- their favorite day is when they get to come and watch the college guys throw, because these guys light up the radar gun. The biggest difference is the MLB guys and the minor league guys can perform when the lights are on 24/7, and they don't only throw hard; they know how to pitch. Hey guys, this is Dr. Nicholas Sirio uh, from Below You, and welcome to the Baseball Playground. Welcome back to the Baseball Playground. This is your host, Jacob O'Dell. And I'm Coach Matt McGowan. Today we have an awesome, awesome guest, the founder of Velo University, Dr. Nick, who is just phenomenal with the content that they put out online, teaching you how to become a better pitcher, a better man, and overall a better baseball player. Dr. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate that. Dr. Nick, when I when I found out that you were going to be on the show, I, I you know, did a ton of research and and I just kept getting super fired up about, you know, all the questions I'm going to ask you. So the first one that I, I have to ask is how important is video of a particular pitcher? You mean in like in the recruitment process, it? right? Like them oh. breaking down mechanically, breaking down their kinetic chain, which we, I want to get into, you know, definitely the kinetic chain and, and everything like that. But, you know, we're big believers in video and, and we feel that that helps the recruitment process. What do you see on your side? Because I bet you're videotaping everybody every session. Yeah, so we use video a lot, but video is used from a, an array of different perspectives, right? So from a training world, we're using video not only so that the coach can, uh, you know, slow time down, right? And get a better understanding of how this person is actually moving. But we can also use it from a visual aspect in terms of communicating with the athlete and and looking at, um, you know, just sort of how their energy is flowing. I think some of the risks with video, especially from a training perspective, is segmenting a video and talking about one particular part um, without taking into context how they got to that certain position that you want to say is either good or bad. And then ultimately how the energy is flowing through that position is really what ends up mattering more than anything. Um, I think mechanics in a nutshell are a crock of shit. Uh, and I think even using the word mechanics because of how butchered it's been sort of in this industry sets this sort of platform for judgment between you know the coach and the athlete at that point in time so the moment you're going to start talking about mechanics the athlete immediately feels okay i'm going to be judged on how good how bad or you know vice versa what i'm doing in general so yes we use video we use video a lot um we are not bound to the video a lot of times we want to try and draw out of the athlete what it is they're feeling um and when you're doing that you'll also get a very good understanding of how was this athlete previously coached because a lot of times we're getting guys that are coming from somewhere else or um you know they're in a college program and they've you know maybe they've just been fed bad um not necessarily advice but sort of just like this is what you're doing wrong not necessarily like hey okay great how do i fix it and now they're left to 
you know, finding pages like ours, like Tread, like, you know, all these other accounts and, and trying to like decipher, well, is that exactly what I do wrong? So should I be following this? And that's my beef with social media is it's, it's really impossible to try and give this whole context of what it is you actually need to be doing. So then let me ask you this. What do you think a high school player or a college player should be doing then if they're falling into exactly what you just said? Uh, throw, throw, throw as often as humanly possible. Um, uh, you cannot throw hard without throwing hard intent at some times in your life. Uh, it shouldn't be every day, but it should probably be more than you think. Um, and throwing at a high intent doesn't mean getting on a mound and pitching in a game. It just means challenging your body to try and balance between, you know, hey, am I coasting or am I actually testing my limits and then recovering? Um, so uh, I know that's an oversimplified answer there, um, but the true answer without like, Hey, plugging us, plugging, I mean, all of these places are great. So that's the other thing, like thinking that we're better than Tread or Tread's better than us or, or some of these drive lines better than us or this, at the end of the day, you're, you're splitting hairs as long as those individuals understand, you know, human kinetics and, and essentially the actual action. But at the end of the day, you should just go with whoever you have the best connection with and that you can communicate easiest with. Because ultimately, that's what an athlete needs is they need to be evaluated. You can't do anything without understanding your starting point. And if you don't understand where you're starting from, you're just guessing and you're going at it blindly. Yeah, no, that, that's amazing. Talk to us about, you, talk, you brought up the kinetic chain and, and how, how, do you, how can you tell if a pitching coach actually does know the kinetic chain? Because there's a ton of, we're in Los Angeles, there's... So many pitching coaches from Timbuktu to, you know, oh, I played in the majors. I did all this stuff and, you know, get up, put a bag on his hand and, and go like this. You're, you're going to throw harder. A bunch of, you know, guru type type stuff. Sure. Talk to us about how can you tell if someone's kind of a bullshitter or not? Well, um, so having an understanding of gross anatomy, I think, is super important. Uh, when I say gross anatomy, like. You don't got to understand the nuances of like cellular breakdown and, and like protein synthesis, right? Like yeah. we, we need to understand, you know, generally how are the joints uh, interacting? How are the muscles and then ultimately the fascia, right? Controlling all of this interaction. Um, you can probably get an understanding pretty quickly just based on their vernacular and like the language in which they use. Um, but also to you got to be careful because guys can throw out buzzwords, right? Like, you, you know, hear that oh, I'm working. Yeah, I'm working on proprioception because I'm using a water bag. And like, I'm, you know, uh, I'm working on my, I don't know, I'm trying to give you a thousand different uh, ways that like, we've heard all of these different things. And listen, we're guilty of them too, right? It, it's the nature of social media. You're trying to say something within the first three seconds to attract somebody so that they can actually listen to the bulk of what you're trying to get across. But um, at the end of the day, the kinetic chain is nothing more than how does energy transfer through this individual. And ultimately, what you need to decide is um, first, you need to address, you know, how do they transfer energy? And then you can address, well, if they don't transfer energy very well, is there, percent, is there potential to create energy lacking or is there potential to absorb energy lacking? 
And that may be one and the same, but it is an important question to ask. And then ultimately the final piece is what is, you could probably start with this, but what is their genetic makeup? Because ultimately that's going to determine a lot. Uh, and, you know, does it mean that, you know, if your dad's five, five and, you know, you all of a sudden come out and for some reason you're six, two, that you're going to be limited because he was five, five. No, but we do need to understand that there are genetics that we just can't outrun at certain points in, in understanding this. But in a nutshell, the kinetic chain is just energy transfer. It's understanding how energy transfers ultimately from the ground to the hand. Um, and there is a process by which that goes, which is just basically uh, segmental multiplying, um, which just means like if, if I can take the energy that I produce into the floor, the floor will then obviously produce that energy back into me. Yeah. Um, uh, as, a, as a caveat here, I should say that I think the legs are massively over blown in terms of their importance in pitching. But for that, I will say that uh, the ground, the energy that I'm taking from the ground needs to make its way towards the pelvis in enough to allow me to capture the momentum of the slope. And then ultimately my torso is going to decide what I can and can't do. Uh, it's going to make up uh, up to 86% of the work or energy that's going to go towards the hand. So we must understand how important the position, um, the capacity to capture the momentum. And ultimately, the most important part is the timing. Uh, because you can see guys that have small ranges. You can see guys that have big ranges. All that matters at the end of the day is can they time it up well. Absolutely. Makes total sense. Um one thing I was going to comment though is if your dad's five five and you're six two, the mailman is probably also six yeah. two. So or, or mom, yeah. or mom is. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just trying to not not rain on anybody's parade if their dad's only five five. So, I love it. I love uh, it <laughs> for sure. You you had touched on uh, something that I want to dive into because it sounds a little bit of uh, your philosophy, but you said that the legs are overblown. What do you mean? by that, what's your philosophy on, on legs through the kinetic chain? So uh, we've gone down the route and rabbit hole with unbelievable athletes of like, hey, you know, based on your hip functionality, you know, the way that your bias in terms of, so the, the way the, the hip and pelvis form, right, is it gonna be either antiverted, retroverted, right? Which means you're gonna either have a bias towards internal rotation or external rotation, right? This then would weigh on theoretically how your force can be dispersed uh, from the ground just because of the how well the the joint is going to be articulating when you're going into some of these positions. Sure, that matters slightly. Uh, and what I'll say to that is, how are you testing that in the first place? Right. So we have tested it from a packed position, which means when the foot is on the ground, we're testing that or from a unpacked position where it's like more passive and we're checking those ranges of motion. We have had guys that have fit that model. We have had guys that have blown that model out of the water and still throw 97. Um, so whenever you're trying to formulate a model or a theory, just understand that when you're starting to deal with the best, they will completely mess that up um, because they are probably the greatest compensators in the world. And they're going to find ways to do things that theoretically shouldn't be able to be done. Um, now, 
getting back to like, oh, why do I think the legs are overblown? I, I really think the job of the lower half is to generate initial momentum and create a stable platform for the torso to rotate at an extremely high velocity. Um, if you are incapable of creating this platform or this foundation at the pelvis region, uh, your torso is going to be left to being either either slow as a mover because it doesn't feel stable and it doesn't feel like it has the freedom to do so, um, or it's going to try and balance itself by switching off over the pelvis and not allowing itself to grab all the energy possible um, towards the direction you want to go. So why do I think the legs are overblown? I think a lot of people talk too much about needing to uncoil the back hip at the right time, needing to leap off the mound, needing to uh, hinge heavily. And I think it ultimately causes too much of an internal focus on the lower half. And you cause players to be over-dramatized with what is going on in my lower half. Um, which I'll get back to sort of the other point that you made there with like, oh, hold this water bag and it's going to make you, you know, throw 95. So every tool is as full of shit as it is positive for an athlete. And the reason I say that is if the tool becomes a crutch, you're no longer in a routine or a practice, you're in a ritual. And once you've crossed into a ritual, it's a very dangerous world to be in because the moment that that doesn't happen, you're going to be mentally weak heading into whatever you're trying to head into. Um, do water bags help? Yes, at times. They, they can be very useful. Um, is it proprioception? Yeah, to an extent, that is what you're working on. Um, but honestly, where we focus the most with water bags is the athlete's capacity to be connected to the floor. So we're really focused on their balance from the back foot. Um, if the foot is not well ingrained with the floor, even though you're wearing a cleat now at this point, but if the foot is not well ingrained with the floor, uh, you don't stand a very good chance of creating a stable pelvis above. Yeah, I know that that's, it's amazing. I think you're absolutely right. Once it becomes, you know, routine, um, or ritual, like you said, it, it, it becomes dangerous because if you can't do it, then it's, you know, you're, you're psyching yourself out before the, the game even starts. Um, I want to talk about philosophy or uh, not philosophy, uh, facilities, right? Your facility has some amazing technology, amazing things to help the, help their athletes talk about your facility, but then also talk about what kids that maybe can't afford to go to your, your facility, what they can do to just better themselves. Well, uh, I, I will certainly get to my facility, but to your last point there, um, there's a running joke here that our remote athletes are better than our in-house athletes. Um, and that's simply because the average velocity on our remote guys is higher than our average in-house athlete. That may have something to do with where we are located in the country, but, um, you know, it, 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 it's real. So does Trackman, does Stalker, does, uh, I don't even know, uh, force plates, um, Kaiser equipment. I mean, we, you name it, we have it. Do they help? Uh, they certainly do. If you are going to understand how to use them, understand what they're telling you, um, and understand that the human mind is stronger than any data point that you can ever find. Um, so we can have guys 
one of our guys that's in the MLB right now uh, has some of the most lackluster force plate metrics you've ever seen. Um, but he can still throw 95 on a mound and is an unbelievable pitcher. Uh, so have we been able to make some connections with force plate output into like ball velocity? Yeah. Uh, is it always true? No. Just like I said before, if you're going to try and make a perfect model, just get ready for it to be blown up. And if you want to be ignorant to when it's blown up, then you'll claim you have a perfect model. But if you want to be real about it, you'll understand that there's no such thing. Where is the mile per hour going to be in 10 to 15 years we're already seeing 100 miles an hour 102 105 is it gonna get higher than that is it gonna be in the 110s is it gonna be is that possible like is the kinetic chain gonna allow players to throw that hard what do you think it'll be in 10 to 15 years so i think what's pretty cool is when you look at um shoulder velocities right uh as you get more proficient meaning like at a higher level, you actually see the shoulder velocities go down. Um, so like a, an elite level pro is going to have a slower shoulder velocity or internal rotation speed than let's say a minor leaguer or certainly than a college and high school level athlete. And the reason is, is they're just better at transferring energy all the way to there. Um, so I bring that up because could we see, you know, 110? I'm sure there's somebody out there that you know like usain bolt says has that shit that you just can't teach yeah. and all of a sudden is going to be born with a blessed arm and you know can throw that hard yeah i think what you'll probably see is what you've been seeing i think you'll see innings continue to go down because i think you'll see velocity averages continue to rise and i think you'll see the gaps start to rise um you're already seeing it division three uh, division two gaps are closing in on D one gaps, right. In terms of velocity. And that's going to continue to be the case, uh, especially with the portal open, especially with guys not being able to get to some of these big time schools, frankly, because they're recruiting or they're bringing in, you know, eight grad transfers, uh, as opposed to taking a risk on a, you know, 17 year old kid. Yeah, no, the transfer portal has completely changed the recruitment process and, and just being able to, yeah, like you said, take a risk on a kid that probably just definitely deserves it. And, and 10 years ago would have been, you know, a guy that they'd begged to come to their school. Um, it's definitely, yeah. it's definitely changed. So as you're having these players that are coming to you looking for a college to select, or maybe it's some of the college players that you already have that are looking to transfer and go to a new place. What are some of those conversations looking like from your perspective on advice that you give them on making that decision to go to which school? Cool. Um, so first thing right out the shoot is uh, we plead with every kid to go somewhere where they're wanted deeply. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, the next decision is compare yourself to the others that are already there to decide what your impact is going to be. Uh, going into college nowadays, assuming you're going to be playing all four years at that same school, I think is naive um, uh, for a multitude of reasons on either side, right? Uh, whether the athlete can level up or whether the team just feels they're not at that level anymore. 
so I think that's, that's, that's a really tough thing because I, there's a huge mental transition that happens, right. When you go from high school to then college, which is, it's really the first time in your life that you have switched from a game to a business. And if you're lucky enough to go beyond that, uh, it's the next time you'll see what a real business operates like. So at the college level, a lot of these kids get their first idea of what it means to have to perform at all times. Uh, there's no days off. There's no, there's no period of time where somebody isn't watching. And I think understanding that and deciding, you know, knowing a kid is super important for us, right? Like learning him from an emotional perspective, him from a mental perspective, him from a uh, work ethic perspective is super important when trying to help him decide what college they want to go to. Uh, simply because if we have other guys there, we can get a feel for what that atmosphere is like and, you know, whether or not this kid is going to be cut to, to really hang there or, or, you know, contribute. Absolutely. You have major leaguers that you work with. You have minor leaguers that you work with. You have college guys that you work with. Out of those guys that throw roughly around the same miles per hour, what do you see is the biggest difference in either their work ethic, their philosophy, or the way they go about their business? So once they get to the next level, there's no difference. Um, meaning like pro level, uh, it's the only delineating factor is mental. Uh, they're all the same. They're all just as skilled. They're all, they're all skilled from a throwing perspective, yeah. right? I, I would argue many of the college guys that we have in here, because you know, we can have our MLB guys downstairs, th their favorite days when they get to come and watch the college guys throw because these guys light up the radar gun. The biggest difference is the MLB guys and the minor league guys can perform when the lights are on 24 seven and they don't only throw hard, they know how to pitch. Um, so ultimately at the end of the day, the biggest delineating factor is how well can you manage your mental landscape? And, you know, understanding that that isn't just happening when you're stepping between the lines, the further up you go, uh, the further up you go, that's happening every single day. And, you know, I would say from our MLB guys, 99% of the conversing that I'm doing with them throughout a year has to do with the mental landscape as opposed to anything physical that they're going through. We, we talk a lot about mental approach on, on uh, the, the show, and we have a lot of people that come on the show who talk about teaching mental toughness, right? And I, I honestly don't think that it's like a teaching in the sense. It's like for some people, you either have that mentality where you just want to get after it, you're competitive, and for some others, they just aren't. What is your take on some of the people who maybe need a little more push to become mentally tough? Yeah. So you're not wrong. Um, in fact, there is no way to teach mental toughness um, because it's not a tangible asset. Right. Um, so the only thing you can do is provide opportunities and then you can nudge somebody to take that opportunity. That's about it. Um, and if they take the opportunity and they learn about themselves, uh, then they can become mentally tough. But understand that, too, is. Uh, subject or domain dependent, right? Like I can be extremely mentally tough when it comes to reading, right? Like maybe I really struggle at reading and I have to push myself through these things. And for that, I feel like I've become very mentally tough at 
you know, enduring something that is really strenuous and tedious, right? Whereas if it came to maybe working out, maybe my mental toughness at working out was just really poor. Um, so, you know, listen, we deal with guys too from an array of socioeconomic cultural backgrounds, right? And you deal with their upbringing defines most of their personality characteristics. Um, you know, a lot of this is set in stone. You're just trying to bring them to the surface uh, and teach them how to use the emotional energy that they have in a constructive way. So, um, you know, I may have a guy that is immensely mentally tough on the mound, but hates the weight room. And my job isn't necessary. And, and like, here's the biggest mistakes from most coaches is like, oh, I see the easy route where I can make a major change in him and think like, that's what I have to push him in. Not necessarily. There might be a reason he doesn't respond well to the weight room. And I'm not saying that we don't try and get him to be more entrenched in it, but we have to get him to create his own buy-in. Me berating him that he's fat or he's lazy or he's out of shape, but yet he can go on the mound and carve, throw 92 to 95 and is highly touted. That doesn't make any sense. Um, so I think uh, mental toughness is domain dependent and I agree with you completely. There is no teaching it. There is providing opportunities and then uh, forcing somebody to take that opportunity. Where are you seeing kids come from location-wise? You said you do remote. Are there a lot of California guys? Are there a lot of you know New York guys? Where are these kids? Where are you seeing the best results from the kids in what location? I mean, to be honest, it would be really easy to come on here and be like, oh, blue collar all the way, and like those guys got it. But it's just not the case. Uh, there are some blue collar guys that got it and like they just come from you know uh either it's a generation or a family where like yeah they're gonna grind and they're gonna get it and then there's some kids that come from really wealthy areas and really like but they want it just as bad if not more and if they have more resources it's gonna be really tough for the blue collar guy to keep up um and so it is really diverse um and it is really person dependent and i think that's why you see such a spread when you see a draft or when you see a, you know, like, listen, we, we're in Westchester. It's one of the wealthiest counties in the country. And yet we're still pumping out MLB draft picks in the first round, like every year. And so, you know, it is, it's really uh, person dependent. Um, but ultimately you have to look no further than their house. When we're talking about, getting people seen because uh, that's pretty much the majority of what we're here to do is to help people get seen help them get recruited eventually once understand the process and understand the process and make it easier so my question for you is uh do you think that facilities like velo u are gonna start playing a way bigger role in the recruiting process because you guys are videotaping everything because you guys are more hands-on and you guys are able to have a wider spread network based upon what you know and also what is happening on social media? Yes, uh, we already do. Um, so we post a kid. Uh, I was, uh, I think unfortunately, uh, I was at a wake or a funeral and I got a text message from an ACC coach saying, is this kid so-and-so for real? 
I had no idea what he was talking about. Unbeknownst to me, we had bullpens that day. Um, and apparently one of our kids threw on Twitter and it within minutes, I had a text. And uh, to be honest, I hadn't really spoken to this coach much prior. I, didn't, I was actually shocked I had his number in my phone. Um, so, you know, yes, we're going to play a way bigger role. Uh, facilities will play a way bigger role. Um, I think summer teams play a huge role, right? I think the connection between summer teams and facilities is super important so that everybody can be on the same page because ultimately at the end of the day, I understand their dynamic because we can't forget about the business side of it, right? I understand their dynamic. They need to be successful. So they need to have great players, right? And, and we get that. Our objective is singular. We want to make the player as good as humanly possible, right? So we have a very close knit, you know, uh, sort of co-joining quest that we're both seeking right here. The idea is we just need open communication with the suppression of a lot of egos, right? To understand that all we're trying to do is put this kid in the best spot possible to be seen and to prosper and not get hurt. What is the ideal age where you want to get or grade, you want to get your hands on a kid and start the development process? 13. Why? Uh, because they haven't been overcoached. So if they haven't been overcoached, it's a lot easier. Um, it does take a lot of buy-in from the parent because we're not cheap and that's a long road to go. But if you have the resources, make it, make, make the sacrifice because the amount of kids that I can show you that we have started with at age 13 and are now either committed or playing in the ACC is ridiculous. Um, and it is simply because they are getting high level coaching from a young age and they're making leaps and bounds ahead of other guys when, I mean, listen, I have a nine-year-old, right. Who I have to plead to play a sport, like try to get him off of a video game, try and get him into something. When you have a 13 year old who wants to be committed and wants to put in the effort that it takes to do this, heed that message. Start young. Do not waste. It is so difficult for me to get a kid, or our team, to get a kid that's already 15, 16 years old in committed or recruitable shape in a three-month window, six-month window. That's really challenging. And if you can give us a kid at age 13, I promise you the number one message you're going to hear from us if they start at age 13 is less, less playing, not as much. He doesn't need 80 games over the summer. You know, he doesn't need 50 tournaments where he's showcasing in front of X, Y, and Z. He doesn't need that. You know, he needs to understand how to train. He needs to understand his body. He needs to understand freedoms. And he should have the ability to play a multitude of things at that young age. Do you think that kids are playing too much? Um, I think kids are playing too often. Um, and I think that's the nature of probably where I live in New York. We have a very short window to try and get all these games in. Um, so the often is probably like the frequency of play is probably worse than the volume of play across the year. Um, because, you know, they're at a young age, right? They're playing, they're pitching, and then they have a game the next day. So they're going to go play the field. 
let's say they have a really smart coach and they're going to DH, they're going to play the field the next day. Right. And, and understanding the missed opportunities to even train in there, I think is, is what's even bigger uh, of a miss. Um, so I don't necessarily think that they're playing too much. I think they're playing way too often. Um, yeah, I think, right. you know, and I think, I think a lot of times too, we get back to the business side of it. I think summer teams are in a tough route there, right? Because they're constantly trying to prove that they have the, the pull or the viewership necessary to get your son to the next level, right? That's ultimately why you're playing with that summer team. Yeah. And I think for that, they should be paid very well if they can do that and they can showcase you well. However, I think how they try and make up a lot of that or, or keep even is that they book all these games during the week too that are like meaningless bullshit games in front of nobody. And that's where you get into this like frequency slash volume issue. We see a lot of uh, travel teams uh, since we're on this topic of travel teams, summer ball teams, where they're separated into, you know, the gold, silver, and bronze tier teams or gold, navy, blue, whatever it may be, right? So do you think that a kid playing on that lowest team should necessarily be even a part of that team if they're not getting the highest end exposure or if they're just the ones that are helping out the program's, you know, finances and that's what actually is, you know, making the business run? What are your thoughts on how those travel teams are in the – three level tier uh, breakdown? Well, so uh, I have a reasonable solution to that. And it, and it just goes towards re-sorting some of the funding, right? So like if you have kids that are, let's just call it level one, two, and three, right? One being the top. If you have a kid that's in level three, he shouldn't be playing as much as the kid in level one. Like he shouldn't be showcasing. He shouldn't be on display. He should be training yeah, so that right. he can get to level one. Yeah practice and train so that he can get to level one. Most of the time should be spent there. Those coaches that you have at that level should be the best at that, not necessarily the best game managers. Um, and, you know, I think that's a better route as long as you can convince parents that they understand that. And that is always the biggest struggle, right? Our, our problem at the end of the day, we've said it before this podcast, I'll say it time and time again, if, if somebody were to ask, like, what's your biggest obstacle to exponential growth? It's education. It's, and it's not like internal education. It's educating our populace on what they should likely be doing and why we feel that way. No, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, as a high school coach dealing with parents and, and dealing with egos, right. And, and them living through their kid and, you know, um, hey, we don't need to play in this tournament. We should we should practice more. We should do this stuff. That's what's best for your kid. Um, some of yeah. them don't realize that because everyone wants to keep up with the Joneses, right? That's that's the old saying, and and unfortunately, it it's it's not healthy, and I don't think it helps helps a lot of kids. I think ultimately, what ends up happening is the same thing with um, social media and and the the misconception that like oh, I'm scrolling through social media to try and find the fix for why I'm not throwing hard, right? And I'm going to rely on stuff that's worked for other people and assume that that will work for me. Right. And ultimately at the end of the day, that's the same thing parents are doing, right? They're, they're looking at what other successful baseball players are doing and assuming that's what their kid needs to do, except they're probably missing a whole host of that roadmap uh, in, in that assumption. Right. 
And, you know, uh, furthermore, for most parents, you know, the biggest issue, I was a baseball coach for 11 years, 12 years. The biggest issue you run into is that a lot of the parents are wildly successful in an array of fields. And the assumption is that that success spills over to anything you do, uh, which is obviously a grave misconception. And, you know, unfortunately, this is a very intricate uh, while simple, intricate path that an athlete needs to go on. And it isn't as easy as just like, oh, well, let's follow the former kid that was a first round draft pick. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You have to tailor it to what's best for your child. Speaking of, of tailoring things, where do you see injuries happening? Do you see it more happening throughout the year with their high school coach? Do you see it during the summer? Do you see it? Because injuries happen and that that's the reality of baseball. It, it happens, uh, you know, for, for California kids, I think, you know, a lot of the, you know, higher tier high schools, I think they play too much. They throw a lot of, a lot of innings and a lot of, I mean, it's fall kids are throwing six innings. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but you see them get injured and then you go, Oh, well that, makes sense because you've thrown 60 innings in in a fall so talk to us about that where do you see what do you think a, a good inning range would be in a fall maybe a winter you know obviously your location determines that but what do you think well uh we see injuries happen in two distinct parts of the year no matter where you're playing and that is like at the start of a season and at the culmination of the season right uh or an extended version of the season i.e. fall baseball. So uh, you're seeing injuries happen here the most because the beginning stages are guys that were not prepared for the uptick in immediate demand. And at the end, you're seeing a mismanagement of essentially strength. Um, so they're due to fatigue, due to volume, due to frequency, whatever version or variable you want to put into ultimately it led to a decrease in strength and likely a decrease in kinetic energy um, which is then an uptick in kinetic energy somewhere else so what i mean by that is if my legs are gassed if my hips are sore if my legs are if my hips are tired if you know my torso is tired or whatever and the kinetic energy is low for my lower half my torso is going to feel that and actually pick up speed to try and equate out the same velocity. Um, and ultimately that's where you end up leading to massive injuries. Uh, it's just because you have these varying forces all of a sudden out of nowhere. So uh, is there a correct inning? Is there a correct pitch count? I think pitch count's a terrible thing. Um, I, I think it's, it's hurt baseball more than it's helped baseball um, simply because of the fact that, well, that's not true at the younger levels, but uh, as you get higher up, I think more coaches are aware, uh, more parents are aware. So I think they're less likely to just roll a kid out there for, you know, 150 pitches. Um, but I think that it's created this stigma that I can only throw X amount of pitches where, like we talked about before, you need to overload in order to create a positive change. And yes, there needs to be a recovery period, right? It's overload recover, overcompensate. That's like the general path towards, uh, you know, adaptation. The idea is if I'm only only throwing 80 pitches, then all of a sudden, if I throw a hundred, of course, that's too much. But if I ever, you know, progress towards these things, recovered from them, gradually push these envelopes, 
I should be able to do that. I don't necessarily think volume is our problem. I think strength is more of our problem. And I think mismanaging that strength is the biggest issue. We see injuries from lazy kids, kids that stop testing themselves during the season because they get excited at the success they're having and they fall away from their routines. Lazy is probably the wrong word. That's probably a little harsh, but it, the, the, the idea, well, the, the, well, but, but everybody is guilty of it, right? You could have the most phenomenal morning routine in the world. You're everything starts going right. Everything's killing it. And you're like, Oh, I can relax a little bit. I can fall off this. I'll be fine. Then the wheels start to fall off. And now you're trying to rush back to that same routine. Well, that's the same thing we see a lot of times from guys when they start to ignore their testing. Like we do use the arm care app quite a bit um, to test our guys. Is it foolproof? Absolutely not. Uh, nothing is. Uh, does it at least give us a good baseline to go off of and some good indications? That with a couple other markers really does help to mitigate um, injury. But ultimately, there is one factor that is the most important in any injury situation, and that is communication. Um, that is the leading factor towards injuries. It is a lack of communication, trust, or just like uh, cohesiveness between the coaching staff and the player. Last question I have before we get to our last three outs. Recovery. Um, pitching recovery. What are your recommendations? Ice. No, I, I hear I, no one wants ice anymore. We want to do sprints. We want to, you know, we don't want to do poles anymore. We want to do, you know. We're we're Ferrari. We're not a Prius. So tell us what you think is the best recovery for these young athletes. Um, weight train right away. <laughs> Honestly, do what you've consistently done right away. Don't magically change some things. Uh, ice guess can have very detrimental processes. You need inflammation. You need inflammation as part of the healing process, right? We you've we need inflammation to create hypertrophy, to create muscle growth. You need inflammation in your body at certain times. So blunting that by icing isn't necessarily the positive uh, that everybody wants it to be. Uh, ibuprofen, throw that in the same boat right there. Uh, if you have swelling that's gone on for several days, sure, start to add that stuff in and probably get to a doctor. But, um, you know, if you have these scenarios where you're like, hey, I really like running long distance because it clears my head after I throw, great. It's not going to be this detrimental thing to you where all of a sudden you're going to lose three miles an hour. Um, it, it, it's just not. I, I, I think most of the time what we see after a pitching event that gets guys into trouble is they do too much arm care. Uh, so they just took an area in the shoulder and forearm that ran a marathon and then they went and trained it, right? No marathon runner is coming out and lifting legs as soon as they get out of the marathon. So it's the same concept here. There's a lot of other ways that we can use, you know, things like isometrics to at least time it and get the, get the muscle feeling good, get blood flow in the area. Um, but ultimately, you know, you want to stick to your normal routine. And for many of these guys, their normal routine should be either that night or the next, I wouldn't even say the next day, but that night if possible to get a sizable lift in so that the next day can be a true recovery day. Um, the biggest mistake is throwing, then lifting really heavy the next day, then going out and long tossing the day after. And it's like, well, wait a minute, when did I recover from this really intense bout that I had? Right. So the objective is really that if I'm going to lift heavy 
I want to do that lift heavy on a really high output day from a throwing perspective. I don't necessarily want to do it on the next day. Because remember, we're, we're, we're just dealing with central nervous system fatigue, right? Uh, whether it's peripheral fatigue in the muscles or whether it's actual central nervous system fatigue, you're, you're dealing with some of that if it's continuously, you know, pushing you down, 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 down. We got to ask you the last three outs. They're the hardest questions we, we ask. So be prepared. All right. So first things first, what is your favorite food? Pizza. Just regular, old, you know, pepperoni. Yeah, love it. You're, you're uh, in New York. Where, where's the best pizza joint? Oof. Uh, I mean, I listen. I'm partial to like my hometown one right there. So uh, probably it. Maria's Pizza in Yorktown is great. Maria's Pizza, um, Yorktown. You heard it here. Maria's Pizza. <laughs> Get below you some pizza. Yeah. Um, favorite movie? I got this the other day. Somebody asked me this. Um. Remember the Titans. Favorite baseball player ever, alive or dead? Derek Jeter. The captain. Yeah. The good. Yeah. It's awesome. I mean, the fact that he one. wasn't unanimous is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. I think that's on purpose, but you know, I don't care. That guy should. Yeah. Be- it's just yeah. like I, I think I think people discredit a little bit what he meant to an entire city, what he meant to the game of baseball. I mean, Yankees are the most storied baseball team ever. To have a guy that can lead that at a young age like that in that city. I mean, people discredit what it takes to do that. No, um, he was amazing. He was, yeah. he was the guy. I mean, he And on top of performing in the highest situations all the time. 100%. Dr. Nick, you are the man. Where can the where can our followers and, and listeners follow you and find you? Uh, velouniversity.com, velou, uh, or I think it's Velo University also on Instagram. Um, I'm sure it's the same thing on TikTok, uh, at coach underscore Sirio, I believe on, uh, Instagram is my personal one, but you see most of it on VeloU as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Ton of great stuff. We got to have you in for a part two. Um, sure. Love it. Thank you guys. We got to get you on again. Hey guys, Dr. Nicholas Sirio here. Hope you enjoyed that podcast. If you don't mind like, follow and subscribe to baseball playground.